welcome to episode 61 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's May 16th, and it's getting nice here, Lee. So I thought it would be a good idea to talk about something that comes up every time this year in the United States, which are tick checks and the outcome of this, which is why we do it, Lyme disease. So our guest today is Abigail Dumas, who is an assistant professor of women's and gender studies at the University of Michigan. Abby is a medical and cultural anthropologist who has conducted ethnographic research in the United States, France, Cameroon. And her first book came out just last year with Duke University Press entitled Divided Bodies, Lyme Disease, Contested Illness, and Evidence-Based Medicine. Abby's work examines the relationship between gender, illness, infectious disease, and environmental risk. She engages with scholarship in medical anthropology, feminist science studies, and environmental studies, and her current interests lie in the intersection of gender, contested illness, and environmental health in the United States. She published her research in venues such as medical anthropology and feminist anthropology. So, hi, hi. Abby. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on as well. So, Merle, you know that to follow up on your earlier comment about checking for ticks, I have to say that when I grew up in Israel, I always had dogs and taking care of them meant getting rid of ticks every once in a while. And this was always a nuisance rather than a potentially dangerous thing. So when my partner and I came to the United States and adopted our current dog, we quickly learned that Lyme disease exists, first of all, and then also that it's a big deal, which makes headlines every summer. So after our many hikes or even dog walks in certain areas, we would always check for ticks. Now, more broadly, I guess that this particular episode is also a new type of episode for this podcast, one of two in one of our smaller mini arcs, which Merle, you seem to like. And this particular mini arc is going to discuss diseases that are quite frequently in the media today as seemingly always with us. I know your dog very well, Leon. Your dog is great. And I also remember that your parents' dog kind of looks like a miniature Chewbacca, but that's perhaps for our dog podcast. But on a serious note, I thought it'd be interesting to move forward until the present day to think about how we think about diseases that are still with us today and aren't going to quote unquote disappear. This has been suggested, as our listeners know, as one of the likely outcomes for COVID, kind of like seasonal flu. But when it comes to COVID and Lyme disease, there's also long-term health implications for many people, obviously, that are not there for the flu. And I should say also, Lee, that I thought about doing this episode on this topic when I found a tick on my son last fall, actually, and kind of freaked out about it, although he was fine. And then just this past Thursday, we found one on my daughter, and I freaked out even more, probably because I'd just been reading Abby's work on the subject. And my wife wanted to know why I was so freaked out. And I said, well, actually, we're having someone come on about Lyme disease. And she said, okay, that's why you're losing your mind right now. So, you know, personal note. So Merle, I have to say that during my time in the United States, I did find multiple ticks on myself and my dog over the years and can really tell you some horror stories if you ever want. And I guess you do get used to, to the freaking out part. So at some point it just stops. I stopped freaking out. Okay, so before we move on to the interview, I guess this might be a good place to ask you, Merle, how are things going on for you? Yeah, so as you might have seen, Lee, the CDC changed mask suggestions, requirements, 
So basically, it turned into a mess overnight in the United States, where different states and different individual businesses are now just coming up with whatever rules they want based on their own personal preferences. What I can see is we went to the Arboretum yesterday, the DC Arboretum, and there were far fewer people with masks on, right? We went in the fall and everyone was masked outside. And now maybe 20% of people had a mask on and 20% carried something around and the rest of the people had nothing at all. Although again, we were outside and the people we were with are vaccinated just as we are. So we just kind of stayed away from other people. But it also means, interestingly enough, Lee, when we went to uh, second breakfast this morning, as you know very well, the line that's always there because it forms outside, as our listeners are aware, everyone was always masked for the whole line. And now this time we were waiting in line and I would say about a third of the people no longer were wearing a mask. And if I had to ask you, Lee, what is the demographic makeup of the people who are not wearing masks? Do you have a guess? I would say probably young and probably male. Yeah, the male is definitely correct, but actually older white men basically refuse to wear masks now. All the women, for the most part, were still masked, all the kids, but older white men basically have clearly decided they're done with this, at least in second breakfast context, I should say, to be fair. Since we have an anthropologist on, I shouldn't extrapolate too much. But how are things for you, Lee? I know there's lots of news out of Israel. Right. So things have actually escalated quickly since we recorded our previous episode, Merle, and I've seen and done much since, but I won't get into the details since it's politics and you keep saying that you don't like it when we bring politics into the podcast. So broadly speaking, the bottom line is that Israel is in a major skirmish, not a war yet, with the Palestinian faction in Gaza, Hamas, and this has resulted in rockets on many Israeli cities and bombs on Gaza. At the same time, there's been much civil unrest in Israeli cities. And here in Jerusalem, we have unrest, but not really rockets. I just want to say for the record, Lee, that I'm not against talking about politics. What I'm against is listening to you discuss the newest election happening because there have been like nine elections during the course of this podcast, and they all have the same outcome, which is a not stable government and then another election. You'd probably be happy to hear, Merle, that the chances of having our fifth election not 10th, but still fifth in what, like two years, has substantially increased over the past week. So I will say two things, though, two things to, to connect to this podcast. I guess the first thing is the power of forgetting, which has been a theme on this podcast on multiple episodes, I would say. And on this, I would say that both COVID and the stampede that I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, two, two and a half weeks ago, which was the worst civilian disaster in this country, have largely been forgotten. So nobody's speaking about these things. Nobody is really thinking about these things. Attention is completely on either conflict or the domestic unrest or the external conflict. So that would be one point. And the other point would be causality. The conflict and the unrest are both happening directly after COVID. And then the question that maybe historians, future historians might want to ask is whether these things are the result of COVID. And I would say no today, and I actually don't know anyone today who would say that they are. But when we look at history, I'd say the best example that Merle, you and I know is the Justinianic plague. We tend to draw causal links between events that are proximate in time, even though there does not necessarily have to be a causal connection between them. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Maybe, you know, episode 900 of this podcast in many years to come, we can revisit this as a mini oral history, if you want, Lee. 
I, I like your optimism, Raul. But what about you, Abby? Where are you now and how are things over there? Yeah, I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We're getting warmer and sunnier here after our long, cold, cloudy winter. Um, we're coming out of our recent surge and I think trying to navigate what that means in the context of what Merle just mentioned, the recent change in CDC guidance. So how has teaching been over the past semester? I mean, you're done with the semester, I guess, right? That's right. We just wrapped up. So you've taught online or hybrid or how did you do that? I have taught online since March of last year, and it's been surprisingly rewarding, especially in the context of not even knowing what Zoom was before <laughs> March of 2020, um, the creative ways that we've managed to find community and carve out space to continue to learn has been really rewarding for me. And this past semester, I taught Introduction to Women's and Gender Studies for the first time, which is our department's large lecture course. We had 269 students, and this was taught synchronously, but we also gave students an asynchronous option. And I was really pleased with how well it went. Did you face any pressure from the university to go hybrid or teach in person, or did they leave it all to you guys? We have a very supportive department, and we were given a lot of space to make choices that worked for us. You're but right. I, I should say that that's not the case for everyone. Yeah, that seems to be the case. And then the other question is looming is what happens in the fall, especially somewhere like Michigan, which I imagine has a large international student population. Domestically, right, most people should be able to get vaccinated, but that seems to me to be the next question for many universities. I think that's right. And we currently have a faculty petition circulating asking the university to require vaccines for all students and faculty. At this point, the decision is to acquire vaccinations for students living on campus. And so there's a push to make that broader. So with that update, maybe we can turn now to the interview. And I'll ask my first infamous question which is, can you give us a short discussion of what Lyme disease is? Sure. It's actually pretty straightforward for as messy of a topic that it has become over the past decades. It's an infection caused by the bacterium Borrelia burgdorferi, and it's transmitted by the bite of a tick called Ixodes scapularis, also known as the black-legged tick. It's commonly called the deer tick, but the black-legged tick is the more formal name. And is that the only tick that can transmit the disease? Well, as so many parts of this debate are, that tends to be one node in a constellation of contestation. But there is general agreement that the black-legged tick is the primary vector for Lyme disease. And where does this exist today? I mean, everywhere in the US, everywhere in the world, maybe give us some sense of where there aside are, from- There have been cases reported in every state in the U.S. This is also part of the controversy in terms of its geographical distribution. It tends to be most common in the Northeast. It was discovered in Lyme, Connecticut in 1982, also in the upper Midwest and in California. But its expansion to the Atlantic states and contestation over its existence in the Southern states has been a big part of the Lyme conversation. So you mentioned the controversy. So would you mind maybe 
telling us a bit more about that and what are the sides of this controversy? Sure. So it hinges on whether Lyme can persist beyond standard antibiotic treatment. And in that form, it's often described as chronic Lyme disease. This disagreement has really resulted in what's often described as Lyme's two camps. So on one side of the divide, you have proponents of what is often called Lyme's mainstream camp, which argues that Lyme is easily diagnosed and treated, and the mainstream camp doesn't recognize the biological basis of chronic Lyme disease, or what could be called the persistence of active infection beyond standard antibiotic treatment. For this reason, mainstream physicians often describe chronic Lyme disease as a medically unexplained illness, which historically in biomedical practice has often been used interchangeably with somatoform disorder or psychosomatic disorder. And then on the other side, you have proponents of the self-described Lyme literate standard of care. And Lyme literate physicians and the patients that they treat argue that diagnostic tests are actually often unreliable and that chronic Lyme disease should be treated with extended courses of antibiotics. And can you maybe tell us a bit about the symptoms of both the pre-antibiotic and the post-antibiotic phase? Sure. I'm not sure that there is a clear distinction between sort of pre-antibiotic and post-antibiotic. I think part of why Lyme disease is so ripe for contestation is that ambiguity kind of characterizes much of the experience. So what both sides do agree on is that Lyme disease is a clinical diagnosis because diagnostic tests don't work until three to four weeks after infection, the antibody test. And so the primary sign in acute Lyme disease is erythema migrans, or what has been called the bullseye rash. There is debate over whether that term should still be used because folks argue that despite it being sort of the hallmark feature, it doesn't always appear as a bullseye. It can be, it doesn't always have that central clearing and it can have different shapes. But beyond that erythema migrans rash, the symptoms are often nonspecific and somewhat ambiguous. So you can have flu-like symptoms like fever, headache, myalgias, muscle pain, joint pain, and that can be difficult in a clinical setting to distinguish. Can I ask, why is it that Lyme disease has become so much more prevalent kind of in the news? Is it just that more people are aware of it? Is the incidence up? You know, what's happening here that this seems to be a much bigger deal now than it was even in you know, my childhood. So Lyme disease began to be surveilled by the CDC in 1982, and you see numbers increase since then. So you start you know, in the teens. In 1996, there were 16,455 cases. Fast forward to 2017 and 18, where you're up to 30,000 reported cases in the U.S. We also know that there is a lot of underreporting. So the CDC had been saying that estimates are more like 300,000 cases. And as of this year, there were some recent estimates that changed that 300,000 to 476,000 estimated cases of Lyme disease in the U.S. It's also true that the geographic spread has expanded. So it has moved west and it has moved further north. And counties that previously reported Lyme disease are reporting more Lyme disease. So I think those things probably have all made it more visible. So one question in terms of how much Lyme disease is spread, is there a role here of changing climate on a broad scale? Obviously, the micro scale would also be important. That's right. There's a big role. In fact, there's an important paper by Daniel 
Sunshine at the National Institute of Health, National Institute of Health uh, published a paper in 2018 called Range Expansion of Tick Disease Vectors in North America Implications for Spread of Tick-Borne Disease and Climate Change is the Isolated Factor and this Range Expansion for Ticks in North America. One question I did have here is that I read several accounts that argue or claim that Lyme disease was originally a developed biological weapon that kind of escaped a research facility in the northeastern United States. I forget where exactly that biological facility was supposed to be. Plum Island. Yeah. So how reliable are these accounts and how can we know? Well, you can read my book. I've got a section in there on Plum Island. It is one of the very heated parts of the Lyme disease controversy. And it has equally divided folks since it emerged. Maybe one more question to kind of set the scene before I think we delve into these different camps and implications of it. You're one of the first anthropologists we've actually had on this podcast. So could you maybe give us a sense of how you did research on this topic that might be a little different than, say, someone who's used to, say, going into 16th century archival data? Sure, I'd be happy to. So anthropology is qualitative, it's interpretive, it's intensely human-centered. So my toolkit, my methodological toolkit, involved unstructured and semi-structured interviews and participant observation. So for folks who are new to anthropology, participant observation is not only observing the activities of the folks that you're interested in, but participating to sort of the fullest extent possible in those activities. So what sets anthropology apart often from its cousin sociology is spending more sort of immersive time in the field that you're in. So what exactly would that mean in this context? So would you accompany people with Lyme disease and just live their lives with them or observe them as they live their lives? Right. So for me, that meant between 2000 and 2010 and 2011, so 18 months of field work, I observed physicians' offices on either side of the standard of care divide. And I spent time at patient support group meetings. I went to regular support group meetings for five support groups in the Northeast. I attended scientific laboratory and public health meetings. I went to fundraising events and scientific conferences. On the interview side for patients, they were primarily conducted in their home, but not always. I conducted 145 interviews with patients, physicians, scientists, health officials, politics, and also patient advocates who either had been patients themselves, were still patients, or were advocating for patients. And maybe just to ask, because I have no idea, how do you get to patients? Do you get to them through their physicians and just asking them to interview them? That's or right. I started with patient support groups and once I earned enough trust in those settings, um, it was able to reach out through those networks to other patients. What's the process then of clinical medical diagnosis, right? So you gave us specific numbers of people who are thought to have it per year. How does that process work? And then maybe we can shift later on into the implications of long-term health. So I think in this case, and maybe more relevant to our conversation about how the controversy has emerged, is how different clinicians know the body and how they read the body. And that sort of mapped onto this division between Lyme literate physicians and mainstream physicians. So I think 
if you end up in a Lyme literate physician's practice where there is a wider embrace for a symptom-based diagnosis and using symptoms or subjective markers of disease as signs. In biomedicine, there's a distinction between symptoms as subjective markers of disease versus signs as objective markers of disease. So if you show up in a Lyme literate physician's practice with a range of symptoms in the absence of what would typically be called signs, there might be uh, more room to entertain a diagnosis of Lyme disease in the absence of a erythema migrans rash and without an antibody test than there would be in a mainstream physician's office where an emphasis on signs as the legitimate basis for diagnosis would either rely on having an erythema migrans rash or having some of the other signs that are recognized within the mainstream camp, such as Lyme arthritis and Bell's palsy. So based on your experience, people who will be or would have been diagnosed with Lyme disease, when these people go to see their physicians, how much are they aware of this entire controversy and debate? Are they part of it or would they discover it along the I way? I think it can be the full when range. Would they I think on both the patient side and the clinician side, they can either know a lot about it or not a lot about it. And I think you can have every possible configuration. You can have a patient and a clinician that aren't heavily involved in the debate, or you can have two that are quite well-versed. And it also is pretty geographically contingent. So you can be in Connecticut and go to a primary care physician. Um, and irrespective of the controversy, if you have flu-like symptoms in the summer without a erythema migrans rash, you're probably going to be more likely to have a Lyme disease diagnosis entertained than, for example, if you're in Michigan. So where you are and sort of the history of Lyme disease in that state is also going to change that interaction. And how open are physicians on the mainstream, so to speak, mainstream side about acknowledging that maybe their patients should go see a Lyme literate physician? Is that even uh, that, a, that's a still a firm line? there's quite a bit of animosity between Lyme literate physicians and mainstream physicians. There are a few physicians that sort of maintain an in-between neutral space, but those are far fewer, and that divide has continued. One other question that pops into my mind is, you know, here in the United States, we're supposed to be healthcare consumers as if we understand the marketplace of healthcare. Is that language reflected or does that people acknowledge that that's kind of a ridiculous idea when it comes to what your physician may or may not know? I think with Lyme disease, because so much of its story is about the patient advocacy movement and the extent to which patients have become part of the knowledge production process, in some mainstream clinical spaces, having a patient come to you with knowledge about Lyme disease can sometimes be a disadvantage because there's a concern that having read about chronic Lyme disease might have already foreclosed possibilities of entertaining that it might not be about what they're experiencing might not be related to Lyme disease. I was interested when I spoke to patients in interviews and at patient support group meetings that there was a pattern of saying, you know, I don't care what I have, I just want to feel better. So that went a little bit against some of the assumptions that they're patient advocacy groups are wedded to the idea that it has to be chronic Lyme disease. So to maybe take a step or two backwards, thinking about the controversy, 
why is or why has this controversy lasted for so long? And both the controversy about the ending of the disease, whether it ends or continues, and maybe also the controversy, the connected controversy, I guess, about the biological weapons, which also seems to be a major controversy there. I think it goes back to the role of ambiguity. I think ambiguity produces contestation and makes it difficult to have neat resolution. And so when you have ambiguous symptoms and you have ambiguous diagnostic tests, getting to a point where you can isolate something as clear, irrefutable evidence becomes difficult. And so, you know, I think when I started field work, there had, in the years before my field work starting in 2010, there was the hope that having, in the context of evidence-based medicine, we can talk about the emergence of evidence-based medicine, that having randomized controlled trials would be that nail in the coffin, that if we did enough randomized controlled trials, we would produce enough evidence that would ultimately resolve the disagreement. And what happened was the randomized controlled trials were performed and both sides interpreted the evidence to reinforce their side, what STS scholars would call different styles of scientific practice. So that actually sort of highlights one of the arguments of my book, which is that evidence-based medicine, often in the form of randomized control trials, sort of unexpectedly and counterintuitively provides a platform that a range of people are able to make claims to truth on. Before we maybe turn to the implications of those different control trials, do you have a sense that this is ever going to be resolved or we're any closer to be resolved? Or are these two sides just kind of digging in without something new changing the paradigm? This is where we'll stay at. It's hard to say, you know, my, the modest hope with the book was hoping that it did something different and that it, for the first time, put in the same place and in productive tension a range of ideas and that just doing that alone would help make things more intelligible and more comprehensible. It's hard to say. I wish I had a crystal ball. So I guess then, based on your outreach in the book, have you seen any changes? I mean, have you talked to some of the people you met with during this book and talked about these ideas afterwards in terms of practical implications? So far, we're not yet a year into it coming out, but I've been happy with the response. My greatest hope and desire is that both sides felt that at least captured honestly and with integrity and transparency their lived experiences and communicated that as well as it could. And so far, that seems to have been the response. And so I'm pleased at least with that. Towards the end of my field work, there was an interesting development with the establishment of what was called the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group. This was part of the 21st Century Cures Act within the Department of Health and Human Services, and this was established in the summer of 2017. And this seemed like a pretty significant development because what it did was it brought folks who since the 80s have been on either sides and brought them together for in-person and online meetings and it was funded for six years, and expectation is that a report would be created every two years, and this required collaboration across the divide. So that seemed like a significant step. Right. So one question I've been thinking about, and Merle will probably think that this is a Lee question, is that if we would want to consider market forces, economic market forces within the health market in the United States. So you would expect, correct me if I'm wrong, right? But you would expect that patients would 
eventually gravitate towards Lyme literate physicians rather than stay with their mainstream physicians who cannot or may perhaps be less efficient in treating symptoms or post-antibiotic symptoms? So have you seen this trend happening at all? And if not, why not? It's a great question. I think for patients that have straightforward symptoms, experience in mainstream clinician settings are likely more positive. But as you mentioned, patients that present with nonspecific symptoms in those settings often describe being dismissed. And that was a question when I spent time with mainstream physicians that was often asked is why are patients continuing to go to Lyme litter physicians? Because from their perspective, they were exposing themselves to harmful amounts of antibiotics and that there were risks that exceeded the potential benefits for these patients. And my answer to that question, and that's sort of, I think, where you were going, Lee, is that patients with symptoms in the absence of what are often embraced as signs found resonance and find resonance in Lyme literate spaces that align their diagnostic and therapeutic framework with symptomatic experience. And that patients will continue to seek out those spaces to have their symptoms recognized and that that could be a model for biomedicine. You know, biomedicine has moved toward a patient center model, the idea of which is to embrace patients' values and their needs, but it stops short of meeting patients' symptomatic experience and recognizing that symptomatic experience as valid. So that kind of naturally leads to another question, which is, do you think this debate over Lyme disease broadly construed has the possibility of changing kind of how people think about clinical medicine in the sense of like an objective diagnosis and an outcome and that there's far fuzzier boundaries around this? I think so. Yeah. I think some of the surprisingly easy answers could be prioritizing and centering just an embrace of being able to say, I don't know. Patients often articulated the desire to have clinicians as teammates who were willing to say, I don't know what's going on, but we can figure this out together. So that could be sort of a simple move that could happen in medical school and residency and for those that are already clinicians. I think leading with kindness and with empathy could also go extraordinarily far. You know, that can be difficult in a, in a framework where, particularly in primary care, there are only 15-minute slots. There's only so much that can happen in short time frames. So, you know, that's not the limitations of primary care physicians, but of a broader institutional problem. And maybe, a, again, a broader question. Do you think that Lyme disease, as a representative, would be a way to maybe help us change medical thinking and maybe even more broadly scientific thinking about objectivity and what is objectivity and whether it is attainable or not? I think so. I think pairing the example of Lyme disease and other contested illnesses, which I broadly describe as any condition whose biological basis is disputed, pairing that with work that's been done within science studies you know, since the 60s, of course, we have Ludwig Fleck's Genesis and Development of Scientific Fact. But the work that feminist science studies scholars like Haraway and Harding have done, I think is also really important in terms of starting with a recognition that all knowledge is situated 
and being transparent about that, but also insisting that that's not mutually exclusive with what Harding describes as empirical accuracy. So I think those two are often described as mutually exclusive, and I think coming to a place where we can carve out an epistemology that recognizes that those can share space is, is an important step. So that resonates with me as a humanist, and I guess also with the social science perspective. But what has been your sense about physicians, people from the natural sciences? Would these messages resonate with them as well, or would they be more resistant towards them? I think it depends who you ask, but I think in general, this continues to be a stumbling block. I think the tension between the subjective and the objective in terms of diagnosis is such a bedrock of biomedicine that that's going to be really difficult to undo. And I think it continues as we see the emergence of lung it has so many similarities with chronic Lyme disease and with other contested illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome and multiple chemical sensitivity, and that it is already pushing up against resistance within the biomedical community that these symptoms must be rooted in psychiatric or psychological disorder and aren't necessarily rooted in the body. So your book was, I presume, largely written pre-COVID, but it came out right, right at the beginning of COVID. And as you mentioned, one of the central talking points that I think has begun and certainly will pick up in the coming years are you know, long COVID, right? People who have symptoms long after they actually get the acute symptoms. Do you have thoughts on how maybe your work could be used to, let's say, build networks similarly for people with long-term COVID? And we might use that as a starting basis for thinking at least, and then we can talk maybe about policy implications moving forward. That's a great question. And I'm glad you asked it because I actually recently decided to pivot to a second project on long COVID. I'll be on sabbatical next year working on this topic. And I'm interested in the similarities between long COVID and other contested illnesses in terms of connecting the dots. And I'm also interested in sort of distinguishing and trying to figure out how it's different. So that's the work that I hope will come. You know, there's been already a lot of important work done on long COVID. I think like Lyme disease, patient advocacy has been such an important part of the story. You had advocacy through Body Politic, which is a platform that started early on. There's also the patient-led research collaborative spearheaded by Hannah Davis, who is also a long COVID patient. So I think that's an important part of the story. There have been pieces, which you've probably read by Ed Young last year on long COVID. And then more recently there, I think it was in March, Alan Levinovitz wrote a piece called The Medical System Should Have Been Prepared for Long COVID. And this was really an interesting reflection on sort of the history of medically unexplained illnesses within biomedicine and what biomedicine's relationship with medically unexplained illnesses can tell us about how we can do better with illnesses like lung COVID. I will say that here in Israel, I have not encountered anyone at any point saying anything about some long COVID. It's just not in the discourse at all. Yeah, and that may be related to the fact that we are quote unquote, over COVID. So COVID is not a problem anymore. That's the broad discourse across society here. But how would you define long COVID today, right? Would that be persistent COVID-like symptoms 
after a certain point in time? I think so. I think it's sort of definitional features are still coming into being, and that can always be a tricky and political process, which has definitely been the case for Lyme disease, and I think will be the case for long COVID. Even in the move to rename long COVID from long COVID to post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection, or PASC, which is the acronym. And there's been pushback with that since long COVID was the name created by patients, and then PASC was the acronym that was created, I think, in the lead-up to the announcement in February by the National Institute of Health when they launched a new initiative to study long COVID with, I think it was a $1.15 billion in funding over the next four years. So that's a lot of money. Is there room there for humanities and social sciences to be involved? And whether you say yes or no to that, is there a way in which we might shape the early development of this work so that, you know, a lot of the work you've done on Lyme disease, say the social sciences and the humanities really looking at what people themselves say, can be built into this process from the beginning so we don't end up going through the same three-decade-long debate over Lyme disease to arrive where we have now. Right. I hope so. I hope there's space for that. You know, when folks ask, what are the lessons that you have for Lyme for other controversies? And the first thing I always say is the importance of multidisciplinary collaboration. You know, if we start from the point that all knowledge is situated and that partial perspectives are our starting point, getting as many perspectives around the table, I think is extremely important and is no more so important than it is, I think, and will be in the context of long COVID. So I hope that's the case. So that's good to know about the kind of practical financial side of things and where things are going. Now I'm going to ask kind of a unfair question, perhaps. Do you have a sense or do you have a wish, maybe it's a better way to put this, of what a better healthcare medical knowledge system would look like, right? I mean, we're very much living in a post-late 19th century world still of clinical diagnosis. What might, taking some of the implications you've teased out or moving forward with COVID, how might we develop a more equitable system and one that puts actual patients uh, first in terms of these diagnoses? I'd say starting with the medical curriculum, and maybe even before that with pre-medical curricula could be an important first step. Having interdisciplinary requirements for pre-med students. My courses that I teach, particularly a course called Gender and Contested Illness, often draws uh, pre-medical students who have gotten to their junior and senior year and have a little time in their schedule to take a course like mine that might not be required. And it's amazing the work we do together in that course as they're about to jump into medical school and how they articulate the extent to which their perspective has changed about the clinical encounter. And so I think starting then and continuing through medical education and residency with not only medical anthropology courses and women's and gender studies courses, but history of medicine courses would really help to contextualize and ground a lot of the training that pre-medical and medical students get and residents get. And then I think working within the confines of the way that our system is set up now, like I mentioned, foregrounding kindness and empathy and also sort of a not necessarily unbridled sense of not knowing, you know, but sustaining an open curiosity 
and trying to avoid foreclosed possibilities might be a helpful compass. You mentioned working within the limitations or the boundaries of the current system. Based on your understanding of the system as an observer for quite some time now, do you see any feasible possibility that it would change considerably? I'm thinking here about really the market economy, right. the healthcare market economy. That's what's tricky in the case of Lyme disease. Lyme literate physicians often don't take insurance and the appointments can often be quite expensive. And so from the mainstream side, the perception is that these are boutique physicians that are catering to the affluent and to the wealthy. And of course, this feeds into our longer history of perceptions of medically unexplained illness in the context of chronic fatigue syndrome, which has often been perceived to be something that afflicts white, affluent, educated white women and has been tagged historically the yuppie flu and that has been used with chronic Lyme disease as well. That clearly is already a barrier to care for a range of patients who can't afford physicians who don't offer insurance. So I think insurance is a huge part of this, not only because Lyme literate physicians describe not being able to use insurance in contexts where visits often last an hour or longer, initial visits, but also because of the politics of Lyme disease, the treatments that they offer aren't covered through insurance. So I think that would be an important place to start, but I'm not sure I figured out. Okay, so on that note, which I guess is somewhat optimistic, maybe somewhat pessimistic, or maybe it's just realistic, <laughs> we can wrap up this interview. So we'd like to thank you, Abby, for taking the time and answering all our different questions. Thank you so much. So thanks a lot. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. So that was a really exciting, interesting podcast, especially to have someone who works on a more modern contemporary topic and obviously is thinking long-term to some of these implications with regard to COVID. Right. And I think that the episode and the interview specifically fit very well with some of the questions we've had on COVID while also touching upon some of the questions we've had in recent episodes as well. Yeah, it's interesting. It actually in some ways ties very neatly to a lot of the episodes that I know are near and dear to your heart, Lee, when it comes to turn of the 20th century medicine and clinical diagnosis. And so, you know, as one thing I always think about a lot is that was obviously an important time period, an important turn in medicine. But in some ways, it doesn't tell us about what people themselves think about what they're suffering, kind of the outcome of that process, or really the implications for broader society at all. Right. In a sense, the research that we've encountered emphasizes the importance of maybe the singular importance of clinical diagnosis. And you can see the same thing, obviously, when you look further back into the past, when you retro-diagnose and encounter those problems, which are even more significant, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And how knowing something medically, or as it were, scientifically, if you prefer, doesn't necessarily tell us about lots of other outcomes, changes, and events. And I think that's a really important way, it sounds like, contemporary medicine and anthropology, obviously, 
are reflecting upon that very question today, but we could say very much the same thing in the past. Right. And you get the opposite problem or issue as well, right? So the opposite is that maybe you would diagnose or retro-diagnose some disease to some person, but maybe that person has a completely different understanding of what their condition, their medical condition, or their spiritual condition, or their physical condition is. So there are multiple different ways to look at this. And I think as this interview with Abby clarified, there's no real good one answer to this, even today, even in a, so to speak, controlled situation, such as the Lyme disease one. Yeah. I mean, I really like the discussion about objectivity and subjectivity. It brought me back both to our introductory history courses, if you cast your mind back all those years ago, but also to many of the conversations we used to have around the lunch table at Sasink, where we would debate these topics between more naturally scientifically inclined people and more social scientifically inclined people. Yeah, I definitely do remember those conversations about objectivity and subjectivity. And let's say that the difficulties of some of the people who were having those debates of acknowledging that history, for example, or maybe a few other things as well, might not be as easily objectifiable as we might think, especially not like uh, a more high school understanding of what history is. It's also something I encounter with my students a lot. But I think one of the interesting things that came out of this particular interview was that Lyme disease really falls into the margins of both those positions, right? It's on one hand, you have this disease in the 21st century, you're using whatever scientific tools you can. It's, it's something that's around us. And at least theoretically, we are supposed to be able to answer many of the interesting questions surrounding Lyme disease. For example, that entire division that I've mentioned between the mainstream and the Lyme literate positions. But on the other hand, as this very controversy shows, it's actually not as objective as we might expect. And actually there are much more factors that come in here. And to some extent, at least, this seems to be subjective even among practitioners, right? Even among medical practitioners. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point in terms of how this functions. And then obviously the next question is, is there any way, which we asked her a few times, that some of these things might change, right? To have some of these people who work clinically, quote-unquote, objectively, learn, be educated in various ways, that they understand at least that this is an idea that's out there and debatable. Wait, so you're saying that it might change in the sense that people would understand that this is subjective? Is that your point? Yeah, I mean, as at least I had a number of conversations with people in various capacities of my career, telling people who only believe in data and objective measures, talking to them and convincing them, maybe not to change how they work, I think that would be a step too far, perhaps, but at least understand the other viewpoint. I mean, it is a major shift, right? A major shift in the way we think. I mean, the way I tend to pose it is whether there is one truth or multiple truths. And I think that it's easier to acknowledge that there are multiple truths on the social science side, but once you move into the natural sciences, medicine, 
at least the stereotypical notion is that there's only one truth and that we're supposed to get to it somehow. And may, again, maybe Lyme disease is a good example about how, about how difficult it is, even if it's true. Yeah, I think that's a good question to leave us on and maybe something we can think about in future episodes. At this point, Lee, I want to bring back our wrap-up segment and ask you a question I've been thinking about for a while. So did you see that there was an ongoing debate on Twitter for weeks or months about whether or not online versus in-conference participation is better? No, I have not. Yeah, I don't actually check my academic Twitter all that often. I mean, I know you're a big on Twitter, Merle, but I'm, I'm not. I'm more passive, but I do go on Twitter frequently. But the reason why I thought about this is this past week was the largest medieval conference worldwide, the International Congress on Medieval Studies, normally held in Kalamazoo, Michigan, for over 50 years now, known to us as Kalamazoo. And you and I, Lee, have gone to this quite frequently. Yeah, I've been there, I think, five or six years in a row. Yeah, and I know this time I didn't uh, participate, even though it was online, but I did go, as it were. But you actually hosted a panel, were part of a roundtable, and gave a paper. So what did you think of the online-only format? So first, I have to say, Merle, that even though you didn't formally participate, my sense, based on seeing you in almost every panel I went to, is that you were probably much more involved with this conference than I was. So I'll just start with that. As for the online format, I think it does not work. <laughs> to put it lightly, it just doesn't work. One of the things I like most about Kalamazoo is actually not the papers. It's the networking, the socialization, the opportunity to meet people that either you've read their work or people you knew, people who've read your work and wanted to have a chat. So it's kind of like a place where everyone gets together. Off the top of my head, I think, what, like 3,000 or 4,000 people per year go there to one particular place. And just not having that and having these like panels in a week of teaching, I have to say as well, was a very different experience. So I didn't feel like I was at a conference. I just felt that okay, I have to give this class this morning and in the afternoon, I'm going to give another talk. And in the evening, I'm going to prep my class for tomorrow. So it's not really the conference experience, I'd say. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I saw some discussion about a similar point, which was, you know, it allowed you not to have to travel to somewhere and take yourself out of your own situational setting, whatever that might be. But that was also a problem in itself, right? Because you still were doing normal daily activities, right? So you made the point that I was at these things. And that's mostly because the time zones were set essentially for Eastern time zone. So, you know, I dropped my kids off in the morning at school and then I could come home and there'd be a panel at 9 a.m. And so I'd just throw it up on the screen, see what was happening. But I think most of the days I quickly muted the panel or left the panel, right? Because I was doing other things, right? I had things I had to write, emails I had to send, things I had to do around the house. So I wasn't actually actively paying attention in most of these conversations, or if I was, I was distracted most of the time. Right. And that's even as like a personal context, right? Or even a personal and professional context based on wherever you are, right? But let's say 
my department or my chair or my dean or my wife, really, right? So they would be totally okay with me just taking four days off and going to this conference and would not expect anything from me in those four days. But now that I'm still in that conference, theoretically, giving papers, being very active in that sense, but still physically here at home or on campus, I would still be expected to do all the regular normal standard work, go to all meetings, take my daughter from daycare and so on. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I mean, I think what I've come to the conclusion, such as there's a conclusion to this never ending debate, is that for smaller single papers that are given in various venues around the world, it's quite nice that I can come in. So as you know, Lee, Patrick Geary gave a paper in Israel from Portland, Oregon, I don't know, a week or two ago. And I was at that paper, which was nice that I could come in and participate. I would never obviously been able to do that otherwise. And we got to have a back and forth uh, afterwards with some questions and then you know, emailed with him afterwards. And that was good. But the large conference, I mean, I just, I can't do four days of in and out most day Zooms, right? I just, I don't have the ability to do that and also do all the other things I have to do. Yeah, I think it's a fair point. And maybe to be a bit more specific about the issue, I think that as a person in the audience, these one-off talks are actually very useful, right? You just come in, listen to an hour, an hour and a half of a talk, and you're done. And you get whatever you would get if you were part of that physically without having to actually leave your home. But if you're a speaker in these talks, and having been a speaker on many Zoom talks at this point, I do feel that you're losing something, you're missing something, you, you don't have the personal connection, even if only with the people that invited you, right? So just going out for drinks or a dinner afterwards, is a good opportunity to establish connections, which now it's just you sign in 10 minutes before the Zoom talk. Hi, hi. I mean, you could just like go hi, hi with the person who invited you. Sometimes they stay after the Zoom talk to have a brief chat. I'd say most of the time they don't. And then you're just done. So again, it's very time efficient, but you're losing the personal connection. Yeah, it's actually interesting. I mean, some things during this pandemic have become far less formal right? In terms of kids Zoom bombing or whatever it might be. But in this context, I think what you're actually getting at is these talks have become far more formal, right? There's no capacity for back and forth, chill conversations, right? If you have a meeting with four or five people, let's say, unless you already know them really well, you don't have the ability to have that kind of schmoozy conversation about, let's use your favorite topically, you know, baseball, football, and, you know, various cocktails you all like, whatever it might be. No, that's true. And to expand the conversation a bit, I realized now over the past, let's say month or so, that I've been in my current position for some two years or so, but I know very few people outside my immediate department. And even those people, I mean, most of them might didn't have the opportunity to get coffee with them. So I know their names, I know their faces, they appear in the same meetings as I do, but there's definitely less interaction that I would have hoped for. And the first semester, the only pre-COVID semester that I had here was a semester that was very busy with doing just that, just getting to know the different people in my university. So 
technically I'm here for two years, but I feel as if everything is still very new to me. Yeah, I think the informality is very much missing that you can't do on Zoom, unless it's, you know, us and we're best buddies from back in the day, to use a nice alliterative phrase. Yeah, and we're also on reminiscing about the past like this. I guess we can conclude this episode. And we'd like to thank our sponsors, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and the LePage Center for funding us, and our sound editor, Amitai Balavi, and our great webmaster, Vered Kanati. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and let us know what your online conferencing experience has been like.